Hello and welcome to episode 31 of your favourite exchange, Lincoln Office 365 podcast, The UC Architects, recorded on Sunday the 1st of December. The UC Architects is sponsored today by Instant Technologies, experts in IM, archiving, e-discovery and compliance applications for Link. Learn more and get started in minutes with a free trial at tryhraudits.com or follow Team Instant on Twitter. I'm your host, Steve Goodman, Exchange MVP, and I'm joined this week by some of my regular co-hosts, John Cook, Stolle Hansen, Michelle DeRoy, and Johan Veldus. Let's start with this week's top stories. The first one is Exchange 2013 Cumulative Update 3 has been released at long last. It's been nearly four months since our last Cumulative Update has been released and the word so far is that it's a lot more reliable than previous updates uh so uh to my panelists uh has anyone had a chance to have a go with it yet yeah i saw it on all three of my notes here in my my lab um no issues right now to report so so far so good yeah no issues installing yeah, the the one thing, uh, especially from being on the MVP program, does seem to be that they've really listened this time around uh, when it's came to saying, look, this is a small issue, please go back and make sure it's perfect. We don't mind waiting as long as the end result is good quality. And I'm hopeful that, that this is going to be the, the sign of things to come. Yeah, definitely there was, a I, you know, from what I know also, um, some more of a concerted effort to make sure that this thing was really well tested, so we didn't have some of the, you know, Mark two and three updates like we've had in a couple past, you know, iterations with the uh, the CRs. So I think you know they listened to a lot of feedback saying, hey, we can't you know trust these things unless they come out reliably. So I think this release has so far been much more thoroughly tested and uh, and vetted. Yeah, uh, the. I think the I think we're really hoping for is that they don't just call this a, a one-off and they really get down to it with every single patch from now on because we, we know they're not all going to be perfect and we can't expect them to test third-party products. We had uh, Greg Taylor and some of the, the product group on the, the last podcast I hosted, episode is it 28, uh, from Las Vegas, and they... That, you know, they, they made it clear that they expect people to test these things with their own applications. But uh, no, I'm I'm fairly confident. Uh, this is definitely uh, for for me the 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 patch that I'm hoping to be going forward with and recommending as uh, as something to get started with deploying 2013 with. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, with you, Steve. I think uh, Microsoft has worked hard to uh, to improve the quality of. Uh, of the of the CU, so as Steve already has said, please test it in your in your Tesla environment to to ensure that it well works in your environment too before deploying it in production. But let's hope that uh, this quality can uh, well that they can keep up this quality also for the the, the CU which is uh, available for Exchange 2010 uh, nowadays. And then yeah, uh, yeah, one thing I thought was interesting in the in the in the, the Elo post was. Um, I don't remember if they ever, you know, came out and said this before, but they're, so they're, they're saying that, that, that CU4 will actually be SP1, which I don't remember them come out and saying, you know, just sort of like saying, yeah, the next one will be, for sure, the next release will be SP1. I was kind of surprised by that. I mean, it's well, you know, yeah. good info, but uh, I was surprised. That they, I don't remember them ever saying it like that, you know. So so that means it's 
there could be quite a gap then. Uh, so when's Mech again? End of March? Yeah, third week of March. Yeah, so, and they only do Mech when they've got something to announce. So it, it could be interesting. That might give us a good idea for when that might happen. Uh, but what are they going to call it? Is it going to be Service Pat 1 Cumulative Update 4? And um, what will be Cumulative Update 5? Will it be Service Pat 1 Cumulative Update 1? Or will it just be Cumulative Update 5? <laughs> it, it, it certainly... Yeah, could... or, what, yeah or will it be Service Pack 1? Because when you call it Service Pack 1, mm. Cumulative Update 4, and there will be... Probably there it's might good. be a cumulative update four for SP one. Then they're well, then they're having an issue because then the name is already there. Yeah, there's there's going to be some confused people when they if they don't figure out the naming properly. But the 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 line between these updates is the supportability, isn't it? So the length of time that the updates are supported, rather than whether it they they all look the same. They all are effectively full service pack installers and full installers. What you've just got to hope is that you don't get people installing the RTM version, then installing service pack one, and then installing you know whatever cumulative update five is uh, afterwards, thinking that they've got to do that. So, uh, oh, believe me, there are some customers who will try that. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we they've never stopped doing that with 2007 and 2010. People right. are still down putting the RTM version in and then wondering why it won't install on 22 and go, well, it's supposed to be supported once I put Service Pack 3 on. And uh, uh, they, they've got to really make sure that people get the message that the that whatever the latest update is, is the, the one to install. You don't need to install the bits before that. Uh, how they... Well, yeah, personally, I think they, well, for Exchange 2013, they've made the message very clear since they say you only need to inst- install the latest CU which is available. And that was with Exchange 2010, it was the latest SP, was okay, and then you need to uh, apply the latest roll up. But, but people, I think people still ask those questions like, do I, yeah. do I need to install the latest roller, uh, uh, update roll up before I install the service pack? Yeah. Uh, and it's like, no, uh, and it's it's not. It's, there's not a consistent, easy to understand message if you don't know where to, if you don't know where to look and you don't follow these things. So yeah, I, I think particularly when it's the whole pain because it doesn't matter if someone installed an update rollup and then a service pack because it wouldn't have poured as much risk onto their environment um, because it wasn't that. It was really a patch and then a service pack. Whereas if you were to install the whole thing, then update rollup or cumulative updates one by one, that would take an age. So they, they need to make sure that that story is 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 well laid out so people don't get uh, confused. Uh, so has anyone had a look at what's new in cumulative update three uh, and what is and isn't mentioned? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't a lot uh, uh, on the list of what was actually new functionality, which is interesting. Um, I don't know if you know some things maybe got curtailed at the last minute or from what was planned or, um, yeah, we, what's on the list is not a ton of stuff. So Yeah, so the, the, there's usability improvements with uh, the picker for advanced searches to try and add people to distribution groups. Uh, so that's that's one of the, the more useful ones. Uh, another one is again these are you'll have seen all these features uh, in Office 365 if you use that and things like uh, IE 11 uh, was was something that went straight into OWA Lite and, and again that's been fixed. Yeah, that was annoying. And uh, and and I I hear but I haven't tested but uh, apparently the OWA app should work as well uh, in this update. 
so, but they haven't really went into detail as to whether it does or it doesn't. Yeah, is that see, that's one thing I was looking forward to. to so, is it? Do we know if it's supported on prem now? I you believe, as as far as I'm aware, I've been told it's in there, um, but I haven't seen anything. Uh, yeah, I haven't seen any documentation on it. I, I've got to try it and have a go. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it still works. I mean, <laughs> it works. it flash and say, yeah, it worked, well, it worked before too. It just wasn't supported. But uh, well, now I, I found it stopped working after they applied an update to it. Uh, oh so really? So I I couldn't set it up from scratch again against uh, Cumulative Update Two after one of the OWA app updates. They, they obviously didn't want it to work, uh, but all the bits that are supposed to be in it to make it work are now there. So uh, uh, that's th- th- these bits are important. I think they should have made more of an effort to, to highlight that and the supportability of it, because if you're going to have a look at 2013, you want to have a look at all the good stuff, then things like the OWA app for iPhones and, and iDevices is it is a very useful thing, especially for customers looking at bring your own device. So, so yeah, hopefully they'll, they'll have a few more blog posts coming out detailing some of the features that haven't been highlighted in the, the blog post over the, the coming weeks. The second uh, update is uh, update roll-up 3 for service pack 3 for Exchange 2010. Uh, that's a bit of a mouthful now, isn't it? Uh, so Update roll-up, Service Pack 3 was the release of Exchange 2010 that you need if you're going to coexist with hybrid with Exchange uh, 2013 or the latest version of Office 365. Uh, and there's been Update Roll-up 1, Update Roll-up 2, and this latest version, Update Roll-up 3, has a, a few fixes in it. The, the, the one that I noticed in particular was uh, when you go to run the hybrid configuration wizard, uh, the Federation proof never showed in update roll up one and update roll up two and uh, now it does and that that's uh, apparently caused some confusion for uh for some consultants i've heard of where they didn't know what to do at that point and didn't understand that it, yeah, it was a bug and they thought what's going on have i missed something out uh, because it was something that was previously there and as a workaround if you hadn't updated to update roll up three you just type get federation proof and get it and stick it in DNS and get, put, put that text record in DNS. Uh, and and I'd recommend you do that anyway, because if you're going to do a change request for the DNS changes, you're not going to do it while you're running, clicking next, next, next through a wizard. Um, but that's fixed for... Uh, and and uh, there's a few other bits and pieces that are in there as well. I think the, the, is the IE11 fix in there as well, so you can use uh, Windows 8.1 with the full version of OWA. Yeah, if you just did the command, added the site to compatibility, you could, you could work around it, but that was annoying. And then if you reinstalled your Surface like nine times like I had to do, then you lose all the settings. Uh, well, if you if you sign in, doesn't it keep your settings if you link it to a Microsoft account now? I don't, no, the compatibility override in entries, oh. I don't think it did. Oh, right, okay. Um, I remember. So that that's that's one thing that's fixed, and uh, no real problems reported with that. I mean, that update rollup three wasn't something that, as an MVP, th- uh, I've been involved in getting early access to or anything like that. Uh, so I can't talk much about how reliable I've seen it in production. Uh, but has anyone else deployed it yet? No, often I haven't deployed it, but I read the release notes and yeah, one one thing. I, yeah, I, tried, I, was, the, I tried to install it, but it didn't work. <laughs> so I haven't gone back to it yet. Actually, you, oh. said, you said that. I, I said, oh, well, I'm sure it installs fine. Uh, so as we kicked off this episode, uh, I started to install it, 
and I was just uh, opening up my screen expecting it to finish. I just realised that uh, you, you guys can see my screen here. Can you see the schoolboy error that I've made here? Yeah, you did. Yeah, I've pressed next on the installer on my lab environment, and I've left the Exchange Management Console running in the background like a complete and utter muppet. So that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, apart from that, it, it's working fine for me. Look at that. It's installing yeah, like a, that's really like a boss. Yeah. yeah, SSD disks on the lab. Get that. Oh. Yeah, I never get this far. I yeah. just get rolling back. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, at least yeah. it rolled back nicely. Uh, uh, I mean, in, in general, I, I despite some of the, the bad things that we, we we've seen with update rollups. In general, I, I've been fairly happy with the overall quality with them, and not found some of the, the wider issues in more vanilla environments anyway. So so if you keep your exchange environment simple, these the, these patches are not, not going to cause massive issues anyway. No, but there are some interesting issues besides the i11 one because when you see the well the fixes for crashes which could happen mm. for the RPC client access, it's well there are a few fixes which well might some might hit some environments. I I read them and they're mostly impacting Outlook clients or are caused by Outlook clients which are working in online mode. So that will probably not be many people uh, around the world and the other interesting thing was the riverbeds when optimizer which could cause the client x server to crash so if you've got a riverbed when opt- optimizer have a look at the release notes of uh, of the rollup because it contains a specific fix for it yeah that yeah that sounds like a bit of an edge case though really doesn't it because uh, those who have been in customer environments for a, a long time uh, unless it was a regression. And having a look at the specific KB article itself, it doesn't sound like it was a regression. Uh, so this issue occurs because the MAPI compression in the riverbed when to WAN optimizer corrupted some original Outlook method calls. Then the Exchange RPC client access service crashes. Mm, okay. I wonder whether that would still do it if uh, the MAPI traffic was encrypted. Or whether it's only if it's unencrypted. Yeah, good question. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't need to worry now because there's a fix. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, so those those two updates are, are out now. Uh, more interesting though is, and I think we've touched on it a bit with the service pat one um, being announced, is Microsoft have been outline, outlining the road ahead uh, for what's in store with Exchange on premises in the future. Uh, and tried to answer some key questions that have been coming from customers. So when is Service Pat 1 coming? What's the timeline for the Tuesday. next Exchange Server release? Um, what are they planning on putting in, putting into the next version of Exchange? And will there be another version of Exchange Server? And <laughs> they say, yes, there definitely will be another version of Exchange Server, which I don't think is a big surprise. Does anyone seriously think that Microsoft would move away from on-premise exchange, even if they'd prefer to move away from it? No, but not in any reasonable time frame. No, I don't think so. No, I've got customers that are not going to move to it for various reasons, and they're not all because of scaremongering or FUD. 
they 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 have reasons that they can't move to it, and usually to do with contractual obligations, and and some just don't need that their organisation doesn't want their data in Microsoft's data centres wherever they are. Uh, so so I'm, I'm it's not something I'm expecting to see uh, happen. I can't see them dropping on premises exchange. No, I mean at least not. Not anytime soon. Ten years? <laughs> That's a word I heard from some, some man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we'll see, won't we? Um, but, yeah. So, Service Pack 1 is coming in. When when, when do they actually think it's going to come? So, they are hard at work developing the next version of Exchange. And uh, they haven't put a specific date on it. Um, but uh, our, our guess is going to be that it's going to be announced at the, the time of Mech. Would anyone... Would anyone think otherwise? No, I, th- I think you're... Well, a new version by Mech announced? Uh, no, the, I think no. Service Pack 1 is probably going to be... Some yeah, I think that, that seems, that seems mm-hmm. to make sense and the time frame lines up. Uh, well, well, yeah. I mean, well, there's no inside information I have on when that might be. So, yeah, that's when I guess because that would make most sense uh, because they're going to want to have it ready before Mech so they can... Do a lot of internal I'll be in line for content when they, when they announce it anyway, so it won't matter. To me. You, you'll be what? Sorry, I'll be in a line for barbecue somewhere in, in Austin, so it won't matter. <laughs> so yeah, so so, so they're gonna. Uh, th- that means that they're gonna have some interesting new features in it then. Uh, so we uh, we had a, a complimentary post that went with it that told us what what to expect, but it's got to be a big release. Uh, the the bits that they've announced so far aren't that uh, amazing uh, the biggest of those is that the edge transport server role is going to return I, I I think that's slightly interesting but I don't think that's uh, that's game changing I believe it, well, they, 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 they say it's happening I, 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 I still will believe it when I see it but and, yeah, and again I, I love the role and I think it has yeah. its place and I think just giving over that role to third parties you know kind of sucks i mean even though it's sort of the reality it's just a uh, you know fact of business but i you know do love the role and uh you know wish more people use it is kind of the thing yeah so so yeah i mean it was a bit of an un- unloved one in previous versions so i'm surprised to see it come back i thought they would uh be heavily trying to push eop i i wonder whether the edge transport server role is going to have a have a some intellectual property from Exchange Online protection because they're, they're developed as a, a single product now. I mean that would be interesting but if it did. Uh, I doubt it though because they won't be able to deliver the updates in, at the same sort of in the same sort of way. At least theoretically, EOP they use the same engine, right, as as the Edge currently mm. for definitions and stuff, right? I mean, in terms of the you know when they release the well, sometimes they're daily, you know, anti-spam updates for Exchange. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but my always, I thought, always thought they were on the same base where they, you know, get those rules and updates because, I mean, they're, they're you know, that's the thing. I mean, I, I run a, a 2010 Edge have for years and years and years, the same box. It's basically an appliance at this point. And, um, you know, some days I'll start getting spam for no reason, you know, and I'll look, you know, just like more more than more frequently than normal. I'll go and, and I'll, I'll see that there's an anti-spam update that I haven't applied and sure enough, for the next week or two, you know, it's it's solid, and then they'll figure out how to get around it again, and then UpMakers have updated. So um, I don't know if they, you know, they they work on the same uh, general uh, base or not. 
Well, I, th- there's a lot more to EOP than could possibly ever be in an edge transport role, sure. such as things like the quarantine messages and the idea that they can adjust where traffic goes to and traffic goes out of depending on what clients are sending what messages and that's the kind of thing that really needs that human interaction where they make an operational decision to to move messages depending on if they're getting a big attack of spam to move them to a a set of hosts and that's the kind of thing that i suppose that they'd have trouble to port to an edge transport role because that's going to have some some real useful bits and pieces that that made that work in, in foppy that they've they kind of just bolted that into the exchange product. Well, you know, it's, it's actually a good topic too. Like, so if, if uh, service pack one, like again, I really don't have any info either on what might be in there or not. Um, what would, what is you guys, what, what would anyone from an exchange perspective want to see? Like what, you know, what's missing is a feature. What's still busted even in CU three. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. What would you guys want to see in, in SP one feature wise? Sorry. Michelle? <laughs> or do you care? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I can reel off a few, but uh, yeah, Michelle, do you want to go first? Yeah, I think it's um, nothing in addition of what's seen now in 2010 products, but people now, uh, there are some customers who want to standardize on the latest OS platform who now have an issue because they can't use the 2010 product. Um, and yeah, they also need to put something in the DMZ. Um, yeah. So this is a, yeah, I think a way to meet these customers in their demand to have such an option. Um and yeah, then for Microsoft, of course, it's better to have a Microsoft product in there than an appliance or something from a third party. Um, yeah, but I don't see any additions to what's currently offered in the 2010 Edge role. And I've also seen no news on any developments in that area. So yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a bit of a surprise apart from the announcement on the ELO block. No word on uh, well, Any additions? For, uh, for, for my OS support, they've announced that Server 2012 R2 support will be coming for it. Uh, no word on Exchange 2010 Service Pack 3 with that, but um, that that's one layer of standardization. Uh, as people are wanting to move to 2012 R2, things like the ADFS 3. Johan, do you have any things that you'd, you'd like to see in it? Oh, I think the most important thing is they, well, they ensure that the product becomes more stable and stable so the trust will become back with customers um and they they listen very good to their customers what they're missing in 2013 because what i what i hear from customer customers in, around my or where i work for is that well they're waiting for sp1 so yeah. probably a lot of customers will start deploying or start thinking about deploying when SP1 is being released. So the most important thing for Microsoft is that they will ensure that the product becomes more and more stable as with CU3, uh, yeah, CU3 is now, and that's, that they will get back the confidence from the customers because because they, they lost, well, probably some confidence with, with the latest rollups for, for Exchange 2010. So if they can, well, can let's see that, that they um, well have the quality back in their product then that, that will help a lot of customers to decide to migrate to exchange without SP1 but from feature functionality well the, the, the edge transport is nice but come on how, how many times do you see it being implemented with customers 
Well, as John said, not as as often as as he'd like to see. Um, the, I think the, the other things I'd like to see are hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe some uh, mobile device management or something. <laughs> well, we got the OWA app, um, but I don't think that they're going to extend that particularly. I mean, there's there's some other good yeah. options around that. So yes, they they need to they need to develop where their store is going to build a single comprehensive solution that works there for mobile device management, rather than having system center here, exchange here, in tune there. It needs to be something that uh, has a clear picture where you can where you know exactly what you need to do, exactly what they've not they've not improved that uh, active sync protocol either since 2010. The protocol version is uh, exchange to 2010's uh, version 14.1. So uh, I maybe doubt it's what perfect. It's... There's no nothing to improve. <laughs> well, uh, well, maybe they will. It is pretty freaking good though. I mean, when you when you think about it. Yeah, but maybe they will have a look at the well the file sharpness in Azure. Maybe that will come back. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, what what are the problems that they would have with the file share witness in Azure? Why wouldn't that work now? Because there's some good reasons yeah. why it wouldn't. And one is, if you set up uh, an Azure gateway, you can't have two VPNs connecting into one network. Yeah, okay, but so maybe that, that that's something they're working on so in the background. A, so yeah, maybe, so maybe so that's that, on, the, on the list, which... So I don't, I don't think that needs any fixes to Exchange to make that work. That needs fixes to Azure to make that work. Yeah, um, that's because true. Two sites have to have two VPN edge devices that connect into one virtual network in Azure to, to utilize that file share witness. So they need to do that part. And I think I think that's less of a service part one feature. Uh, but I, I, I think they need to think about... the. The, the two things that I was going to mention, which I completely escaped my mind a moment ago, were, the first was making it play better in a virtual environment. Exchange is, is now quite cheap to deploy if you want to deploy it on physical hardware. It's architected to be as cheap as possible based on how they deploy it in Office 365, but that doesn't make it as cheap for virtual implementations uh, for organizations that consider Exchange one of many things that they do, um, that they want to run on premises and they want to run on a virtual environment. Uh, there's a lot of small organizations that don't want to spend lots and lots of money o and plan on upgrading Exchange every five years, for example, and implementing Exchange on-premise and just leaving it there on one or two servers uh, is, is cheaper for them, even at the moment, uh, for 2013 with its extra memory requirements uh, than moving to Office 365. So they will implement Exchange 2013, and I think they need to make it play better in a virtual environment. They need to limit back some of the memory it uses uh, and really look at trying to bring it down to 2010 levels. If you want it to, they should give some sort of tuner there. I think the client access role as well, because the client access front end is effectively the uh, the, the protocol proxy, then looking to, to see how they can limit the ports that that uses. So it can be deployed in a DMZ if a customer wants to have it, have it there or have a client access server there, because that's a question that I'm seeing because it's a wall. Uh, from my perspective, I would uh, I'd say combine those roles together. But they said, well, what are we going to put in the edge? We still want to have something in the edge. TMG is gone. We've got to throw that out. So perhaps, uh, perhaps look at how that could be split if customers wanted it to be split to meet their requirements. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, that's one one you know confusion point, and also like, well, why? It's a web, especially in 13. I was like, well, it's a web server. Why can't we? 
You know, why can't we put it in the DMZ? You know, why is it? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's not the correct perspective, but it's certainly a perspective that I heard before, and people are confused, you know, why. Well, yeah, and it's, it's quite hard to explain because you have to say, well, it's not just uh, a web service. You All of your clients are going to be connecting through it. So do you want them to all go into the DMZ, whether they're internal or external? But it may be that for some deployments, it might make sense to have a multi-role server or multi-role servers sit, sitting in the DAG, all running client access and mailbox, but also having client access servers or one or two sitting in the DMZ instead of application request routing, for example. Uh, because then it is providing pre-authentication services in the edge where they it's want. That's a good point too. You ever think we'll we'll see um, you know split roles actually just go away and this you know a server is going to be a server it doesn't really have a a role per se anymore. Well, the, they know, should they should have done they should have done that in this release. I agree. <laughs> uh, I, a lot of people don't want to do uh, do bricks though. They don't want to do multi-role. They still want like that concept of well. You know, if IIS takes a shit, I can at least reboot the server and just fix mm-hmm. IIS. It's like, okay, well, does it, how, how often does that really happen to you operationally in, in your, in, you know, in your company's lifetime with Exchange? I mean, is one times, five times? You know, I mean, I, I, there's a million arguments for it against a multi-role, but I, there's just so many that I don't, don't make any sense to more to split roles, in my opinion, anyway. Well, yeah, so that, they need to sort that out. That's, that, that they should either have one role. I think, or, I think Ross or, did, right? Ross said, "Is if you're if you're splitting roles, you're doing it wrong." <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and they shouldn't give you the choice then. If if they're saying you're doing it wrong, if they say don't split roles, then don't. Then why are they splitting the roles? Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, again, like I said, there are some valid times when you would do it, but I just you know, I'm sur- I, I I'm I'll be surprised one day if they just don't say, you know what? Mm. There's just one way now. Well, yeah, and if they if they want to keep that role, build something into the new edge transport role, for example, where it can do another protocol proxy. The the one thing that I don't like is this proxy, 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 where you might have address request routing, for example, sitting in the DMZ. That's then going to a load balancer, which is then going to the client access role on a server, which is then going to the mailbox role on a server. And that's a, a lot of mess and a lot of troubleshooting. And yeah, going multi-role helps make sure that that's simpler. And having load balancers where they've got an arm in the DMZ make it, again, simpler. But it's it's still it, it's still a, a lot of a mess, uh, a big mess there that they need to perhaps think about trying to give a consistent story on. Uh, and making Exchange simple so deployments aren't a mess. So deployments can't... So, well, deployments aren't necessarily a mess, but um, it people can make them a mess if they want them to, if they go too far with splitting up the roles. Uh, well, as an example, the 2007 to 2013 series I've been writing for org. when I started writing that... Um, it actually started off quite a mess, and I've got to go back and, uh, and and redo it because based on experience I've got since then, I want to simplify a lot more at the beginning. So as the articles progressed, it became simpler. Um, but uh, when you when you look at how to do it, you can end up with too many roles all over the place, even for simple deployments. You're so smart. <laughs> you, you think? <laughs> or are you being sarcastic? No. I never thought of it that way. See. Right, so moving on, 
Uh, I think we went. Uh, I I honestly thought we were only going to be five minutes on these top two stories, uh, so um, hope maybe they'll get edited uh, a little bit because we did go on a, a little bit there. Um, but uh, if they don't get edited, I hope you've enjoyed them. Uh, so let's move on to our, our topics of the. You can always day. fast forward to if you're bored. Yes, yes, especially if you're, you're you're listening. Press the fast forward button for the boring bits. When I start talking, that's when to press fast forward. Uh, Let's start with our first link topic of the day. If you like link, right about now is uh, when we go into those topics. And first up, happy second birthday to Profiles for Link. And there's a new multi-language update out now. So, I use Profiles for Link. Does anyone else use that? And uh, who who wants to give a quick overview to those that don't know what it is? Andrew, our editor, had never used it, so he clearly not listened to every episode of the show. Well, Profiles for Link uh, is uh, a great tool for you guys out there that um, are working with Link, maybe deploying it or uh, administering it, where you um, need to actually sign in with multiple accounts during a day. And the Profiles for Link will help you with that. You can um, add customer um, profiles or several profiles of your own and easily switch between those. So we mentioned this on uh, the podcast before. And now it's got an update with uh, more language support. It uh, supports Norwegian and a bunch of other uh, languages as well. And uh, it's uh, actually better now um, regarding switching between different uh, profiles. It will uh, pull your sign-in status uh, more often. And also when you install, you don't have to... um, um, re-add your uh, your profile um, file, so that's a good thing. And uh, the last one was actually if you uh, if you're already running it and you try to start it, it would just pop up in your front instead of give you an error message. So it's oh, a great good. tool. Everyone should use it, I think, and it's really it really helps you switch between profiles super fast. Cool. Yeah, it's actually I'm using it for years, and that's uh, I can't overestimate how how nice. Especially you know if you're if you're, you're troubleshooting multiple link accounts and multiple organizations, and you know logging in and out, it, it gets really tedious. So it's it's really useful to be able to just, you know quickly yeah. save these creds and go in and out. And it's not just useful for consultants either. So if you've got a, a dev environment that you sign into, then it's good for that. Or if you've got your own personal Office 365 tenant, then you yep. might sign in, sign out. So I, I use it all the time. So it's, it is definitely, and there's a, a few out there uh, that, that can do this, but it's it's a, my favorite simple link profile switcher tool. And you can get that from Greg in sydney.com uh that's g-r-e-i-g <laughs> i can't speak can i g-r-e-i-g in sydney.com rather than greg in sydney.com uh, yeah instant, uh, instant technology our, our, one of our sponsors makes one too um, which i actually i didn't know until not that long ago no so not until that uh, I, I was not aware that they made one they do it's uh i, I, I i'm still a fan of Greg in Sydney's one though. It's very simple. It just does the job. I'm not going to be switching to anything else anytime soon. But yeah, there, there are some others out there. And if you have a look on our sponsor's website, you'll see theirs too. Uh, and Andrew's been trying theirs out and uh, he, he quite likes it. One thing we're going to mention is there's a webinar that you might want to join for uh, SNOM uh, on simple multicast paging. Uh, with the SNOM PA1. Uh, so, uh, 
we won't go into detail on that, but uh, multicast paging, uh, that sounds to me like that's something that's uh, useful for disaster recovery business continuity scenarios. Uh, yeah. is that and also maybe stores, if you want to use link to, to call out a message out in the store, in on the speakers and stuff like that, you could just call this uh, PA1 device and, and uh, shout out your message. Steve to aisle three, Steve to aisle three. But, I mean, yeah, it's one of those, you know, it's one of those things that, it, you know, it's like not something you come across all the time, but when you do, it's another one of those things where companies say, well, man, we can't really look at Link because for our business, this is a big deal. So every time, yeah. you know, somebody adds one of these, I mean, I'll call them strange, but I mean, you know, one more, you know, at least, um, you know, not common type of functionality requests, it's always that much better for Link, you know, because it's just one more thing like, yep, yeah, we can do that. You know, so-and-so can, has a product for that. Yeah, I, I was at I was doing a link uh, presentation at uh, business continuity user, but it wasn't just business continuity. Um, but there were some business continuity guys there, and that was one of the questions they asked about doing that uh, paging in the event of a disaster, so they can use it as uh, a way to reach all their employees through Link. Uh, and yeah, this uh, that's a webinar that you can join, and it's on December the twelfth at two p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, again, we'll have that link to that uh, up on the website. Uh, network planning, monitoring, and troubleshooting with Link Server. Uh, Starlay, uh, Microsoft have put up a guide on how to best do that. Yeah, they have, uh, and uh, they actually did so um, in, in, I think it was before the summer, but uh, now they have updated it. And uh, it, this is really a good white paper. So if you haven't looked at this white paper yet and you do uh, link deployments and troubleshooting, you really should just download it, uh, add it to your tablet, and uh, read through it. And it's, it's quite detailed. It's about 147 pages. Ooh. And when, when you go through this, you know where to look for like uh, some troubleshooting uh, scenarios and some good um, uh, numbers when you're troubleshooting in terms of um, uh, some um, uh, benchmarks. And uh, they updated uh, this November for um, a practical approach to call quality methodology and uh, also a chapter on troubleshooting poor streams. But uh, the last update actually is quite good. It's about key health indicator uh, spreadsheet and also some capture examples for doing that. So um, they're actually adding some tools in there as well and also explaining how they work. So this is really a valuable uh, white paper. Yeah, I think we we talked about this like last episode too, but I mean, I'm still reading it, so <laughs> that's how long it is. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, yeah, uh, it's an invaluable. Is, a lot is it a white paper or is it a book? It's close to a book. It's, it's big. Well, actually, um, it's uh, instead of them releasing uh, the resource kit book, this is the replacement. And uh, one of my favorite chapters, actually, in the OCS R2 resource kit book, is one of the appendixes explaining the SIP uh, uh, protocol and stuff like that. And and this uh, white paper is really close to the that kind of uh, knowledge. So um, uh, yeah, it, it, this is really valuable. So someone uh, like a senior PFE, it sounds like must have done a massive brain dump uh, into that article, and uh, and that's the result of it. 147 pages. Yeah, and uh, you really should uh, read through it because um, 
to, to pick up some of the techniques they use, with the tools they use, and, and what they're looking for when troubleshooting. And, and also, in, in um, addition to this uh, troubleshooting white paper, and uh, where networking is uh, one of the key factors, you actually should look at the latest uh, Ignite um, PowerPoints that uh, has been released. Uh, which uh, has, uh, I think, about uh, 10 um, tracks, or 10 uh, chapters on network assessment uh, on a more uh, overview level. Uh, and some good PowerPoints in there as well to reuse in your organization or for yourself. And, and we'll put a, put a link up for that, but uh, check out the Ignite sites because they actually um, updated with some good uh, tracks. Our next link topic is uh, really, it's not its not news, but it's uh, to call you out for something that you might come across uh, yourself. Uh, issues with SHA-512 certificates on linked servers. Uh, and Johan's going to talk to us a bit about this. But this is uh, the, the problem is a link front-end server is not starting up properly because of a certificate issue. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of uh, Dave Stork's uh, colleagues who... Came across this issue. He uh, saw that the RC service uh, wasn't started and started to looking at the certificate part. And when you look at the uh, TechNet documentation, it says it need to be uh, your certificate needs support to support SHA uh, eight and SHA SHA one and SHA two suites. Uh, of the digit size, and that's uh, 224, 256, 384, and 512 bit. But the certificate which was installed on the specific front-end uh, server was 512 bit. So what he did was he um, he did some investigation on that. Um, the solution for it was to, uh, well, re-enroll certificate and use uh, SHA-256 as the algorithm. And yeah, this is interesting. I, this is not something I heard uh, before, so this is a pretty yeah. interesting corner case, but it good to know. Yeah, and then um, he, he did some additional research on that, why it didn't work, and it appears to be a registry key, which is also uh, uh, described on several uh, support forums of, uh, of Microsoft. And you need to change it. So we will put a link to it on our website so you can see where you need to change it. So, yeah, keep an eye on it when you're installing uh, shell certificates for uh, for link front-end servers that you might uh, hit an issue and read this specific article which helps you fix the issue. Good to know. Now we're going to go over to our U.S. correspondent because this is something uh, particularly that affects U.S. people. Uh, and emergency services 911 is not supported with the Link Windows Store app. As an owner of a service, John, you must be gutted. <laughs> or as yeah, well, you know, it's, it's it's interesting. It's, you know, if you look at the article we linked, it's it's a tiny little blurb. Um, it doesn't really expect, explain why it doesn't work, uh, at least with the surface, but... Um, it should not be used. Yeah, so, I mean, basically... For, it's it's almost like a legal bit. Well, and that's the... You know, one is, a, sort of the, is, a, is an interesting thing, because even in the United States, there's no unified central, um, uh, you know, 
overriding law and how it's supposed to be implemented and what you know what the requirements are. Every state has their own um, requirements. So in my state, Illinois, it's extremely strict. Where you know you have so you so corporate offices have to have down to the cube level, you know, um, for nine one one services. Some 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 states only have you know basically just the you know the physical address of the building or something from an endpoint. Um, so in Illinois, my state, it's nine one one is very nine one one is very complex. But basically, <laughs> now he would say, well, if you have services, it doesn't matter how complex it is because you can't use them because it doesn't support it. So, um, yeah, it's what it's saying is uh, that, uh, that the Link the, the link Windows Store app, the you know MX app or Metro app, whatever you want to call it, um, doesn't support you know one at all, which, like I said, was news to me. And so, it is, you know, it's good to know that, that, that uh, so you know, it's not. So this could be a, an issue if uh, organizations have decided to replace some individuals' devices entirely with Surface RTs, right? Or even if they're using, like, say, Surface Pro or or well, even Windows 8, any Windows 8 laptop. But if they can like, still use the desktop client, right? If, yeah, if, uh, but if they uh, want to standardize on this app. But but um, if it's an if it's an ARM device, then they won't have the the Link Desktop app. Uh, unlikely to have a well, they, they won't have a desk phone either that sort of USB plug-in one um, so if they use a RT device an ARM based device their only link client will be the link store app and if they're expecting to be able to use that to dial the police they'll need to know that they've got to use their Windows phone to do that instead I guess yeah and I think also you know the issue is I mean obviously there's no or few um, RT devices with uh, with LTE or you know some sort of cellular connection right now. So um, you know that by itself is not a big deal. But as they as those start coming around, if they do, um, that could be more of an issue because you know you do have a positional radio in, in, in essence, right? Um, but no way for the client to pick up on it. <laughs> so that's what it sounds like. So that that will be critical to some people out there, um, but uh, particularly for those in the, the US. Next topic uh, is Outlook Web App Server uh, has got a fix for uh, Windows 8.1. And uh, so that's something that uh, you've come across yourself. Uh, so it's a bit more important to you. Yes, it is important because uh, when um, we installed uh, Windows uh, 8.1, uh, we noticed uh, in our Link 2013 environments we couldn't do a PowerPoint sharing. It was only um, if you try to share your PowerPoint or view a PowerPoint presentation, it was only uh, the wheel going around and and you got these error messages that uh, you couldn't see the PowerPoint. So uh, the issue actually was not Link related, uh, it was Office Web App Server related and um, a fix has now been released for that uh, for November 12th. Yeah, where um, you actually now can um, upgrade your Office Web App Server or uh, Server Farm, and uh, now support PowerPoint presentation in uh, Windows 8.1 as well. So, having a look, that is that the full uh, is that a patch or is that full install? Full install, of course. Uh, so you have to remove your uh, your farm, uh, update the hey. and then re-add the, the farm. Yeah, I just I just clicked the link and hovered over and it's saw the, the full it's file. The, the, 
<laughs> the best definition of patch I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, it's downloaded. But it's so it yeah, is actually patch. easy to disable and enable, but you need to know what you're doing. So I recommend doing this in, uh, or you have to do it in PowerShell and save uh, each time you create your farm. Just save your commandlets in a PowerShell IC or something, and uh, because you you have to redo this uh, every time there comes a yeah. patch, apparently. I guarantee you, uh, ever the first time your organization who you know, who might have deployed 2013 and then you know put the OS server in and hasn't really gone through this yet, you will get some crazy looks from people <laughs> in management when you tell them, "Well, yeah, it's a patch, but you basically got to uninstall and reinstall." It. <sighs> I mean, even though we know it on a technical level, it's very minor, right? But they just look at you like, "What? <laughs> like what? What planet are you on?" Right now? <laughs> It's something that I, I really wish they would address at some point. I and, think uh, I think they need to address it. They, you know, they, this is uh, a time when Microsoft are having to compete against uh, against some some big players, and obviously Google are starting to make some ground. Uh, they need to make sure that people have got some good on-premise options, and they need to pay attention to making sure these kind of experiences are easy. This is not the kind of thing. In my opinion, the on-premise admins need to have to concern themselves with it should be a simple update that they can deploy quickly and easily across that Outlook web app, uh, Office web app server farm. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, the other thing, I mean, you know, it's kind of a, a you know, a little slippery slope, but in terms of conversation, but the whole Office server in, in general, I mean, is kind of, I, I, I think we've talked about this before, like people look at you like, wait, what? I got to install what? What does it do again? And it's like... <laughs> And, and, you know, when you say, well, you know, if you had SharePoint and Exchange, it'd be much more, you know, you'd leverage it across multiple products, but they're like, well, we don't have Exchange or SharePoint 2013, so we're only talking about Link, and why, again, why do I have a server, and what does it do for me? <laughs> and, you know, I think that's one thing I wish they would address, is like, either build it in, or at least get a better story around why you need it, you know, how you can leverage it across multiple apps. I mean, down the road, this probably, hope, you know, hopefully won't be a big deal, but right now, I get the craziest, you know... Like just confused looks from people. Like, what? What is this? And why do I need it? And why are you making me install yet another server? You know. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on the the build it in. Uh, that it's perhaps. Um, it, I think Microsoft have perhaps underestimated how how often people want to upgrade all their products at the same time by having that. It's a nice idea having it as a central server that's going to be used by all your products. Um, but the, perhaps the option to co-locate on, on all of the, the the products as well, so on Exchange as well as Link. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, I certainly see the other side. I mean, it, it makes sense one. to separate it because again, if you so if you put those, well, we know it's from Exchange, right? If yeah. You install certain things on Exchange. Now you got to install Office components on your Exchange server to get the filter packs to render these things. I, I get why you make it separate, but I think the problem is it's just yeah, it's another server. Mm. There's pushback, but I, I you know it makes sense why to keep it separate, honestly, but. But I, you know, I think people just don't want to hear that. But I, I do understand the merits of keeping it totally isolated from the road, from the node. You know, again, yeah, but, keep, and, keep it simple and keep the updates simple. Yeah, and, and still we actually see in in bigger environments uh, that uh, the Link group wants to have their own Office web app server, and Exchange group wants to have their own web app server, and uh, to keep it simple and easy. But uh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Especially when it comes to doing updates like this and getting it to be the right time for everyone, you need more people in to support it as well. Uh, I imagine if they had to implement a similar update for Office 365, they that this would have been a massive undertaking for, for Microsoft to coordinate doing that across Office Web App Server for all their Office 365 services. 
they probably just flatten the VM and start again. It's <laughs> probably how they do it. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's, it, they, they've still got to integrate, uh, do integration testing across the, all of those platforms uh, as they do. And, and what else would they add into that as well? Yammer as well. So Yammer, SharePoint online, Link online, Exchange online. And that's that's a big undertaking every time they have to to, to patch these environments. Uh, they're not making it easy for themselves either. Or perhaps on the other hand, they're making it easy for themselves because, as you say, they flatten everything and just roll out the new version and uh, expect everyone else to follow that lead. It's always easier when you just install the new bits. <laughs> uh, I've just seen from Michelle. Michelle, you can speak up and say that. Did Steve just mention Yammer voluntarily? Yes, I did. <laughs> um, the the the. the I think uh, a few people must think that I, I really dislike Yammer uh, because I can say a lot of nasty things about it, uh, but I can also see, say a lot of good things about it as well. Uh, so, yeah, um, I don't dislike <laughs> Yammer at all. Uh, I just uh, spend a lot of time slacking it off. Um, I'm addicted to it. That's that's why I dislike it so much. I must have checked it a good few times today, and it's a Sunday. Uh, moving on. and. Um, our last link topic of the day uh, is from Starlight Hansen, and it's about using... Actually, I'll let you introduce it and, and tell us uh, more about this, Starlight. Okay, thanks, Steve. So this is uh, more like um, off-topic and more like a tip or a tool for you IT pros out there. I don't think this will scale well in the, in the organization, but it's more like personal productivity. So um, I've been uh, quite busy lately. I've been so busy that I haven't gotten anything done. Uh, and then I had to create something to help me get things done. And uh, one thing was uh, leveraging Link to make me unavailable when I work and, and need to produce some good documentation or create some good slide decks for a presentation or, or really get my head around a big troubleshooting problem. And then I need to have my, um, my space and, uh, and work for uninterrupted for uh, a certain period of time. So uh, uh, have you guys ever heard about the Pomodoro technique? I haven't. No, I haven't. Um, but t tell us, especially for the, the listeners' benefit, too. It's a type of pasta. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, the Pomodoro technique was actually invented uh, by this Italian guy. Uh, I don't remember the, the name of but, uh, it. But it's actually a simple thing. Uh, you have this um, uh, time slot for about 25 minutes or, or whenever, wherever you, it, it suits you. And for that time or period, you should not get interrupted, and you should not interrupt yourself either, and just focus on what you're going to do for 25 minutes, and then take a break. And you should uh, shut down um, not reading emails, not uh, reading link messages. You shouldn't go and browse the web. And I, I guess uh, some of you, uh, as me as well, Suddenly, there's a Twitter pop-up, or uh, and I, the, uh, time after five minutes, um, I get in my head that I need to check uh, Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or something, and then I go to this, uh, uh, just check those sites out, and then I start working again, and and yeah. I actually yeah. do interrupt myself quite a lot of times during a day. It breaks your it breaks your flow, doesn't it? it yeah. So so the thing here is to to uh, go in your, your flow state and stay in there as long as you can. And uh, for me as an IT pro, um, 
I can't do this a lot of times to just sh shut down, but when I first do, I try to do it using the Pomodoro technique. And um, uh, what I've uh, done is um, create a PowerShell script that leverages the link SDK, so you need to install that on your computer. And then you can uh, run this PowerShell script that shuts down your computer for you. Um, hitting presentation mode uh, for laptops and also for desktop, so you don't get any Outlook pop-ups and Twitter pop-ups and whatnot. And then also set you in a do not disturb custom present state that tells your peers that you are in a Pomodoro sprint and uh, uh, how long until you are available again. So the thing here is to use the link presence to be unavailable when you need to be unavailable. And it's just for 25 minutes. So it's not that long. Instead of making yourself unavailable the whole day and uh, just work and, and maybe two hours of that day is productive. So this is more like, and you could be amazed of how much you can get done in just 25 minutes. So you could write some good emails, some, uh, some good documentations and stuff like that. Yes, Steve. Uh, so so, so when you do 25 minutes, do you do 25 minutes off, uh, and you know you just surf the web, catch up with your emails, or you know, and then go, yeah. then 25 the, minutes on again? Is it? Oh, like it's more like a, you should do minutes five off, minutes off, um, oh. and be available. But but I don't do that. I, I just uh, so I'm not uh, implementing the Pomodoro technique uh, the best way, but. Um, I'm do this 25 minute sprint and then I yeah. do whatever, answer emails, uh, check Twitter, do my run. And when I'm uh, ready again, I will do a new 25 minute sprint. Uh, okay. Um, so the, but if you have done it four times or, or so, uh, you should take a longer break though. So the idea is that you do 25 minutes, spend five minutes. I suppose if you're a smoker, then you're going to smoke uh, a lot of doing this technique 25 minutes on 25 <laughs> minutes not doing anything 25 minutes the on the good news you don't minutes. get bothered the bad news you die <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. 5 minutes cigarette break 25 minutes on again yeah <laughs> and what like I usually I noticed that after 17 minutes maybe it seems yeah. like I've been working forever and then I just oh and maybe should check some emails and stuff like that. But uh, then I look at the timer. It tells me it's uh, still some minutes left. So I will still try to focus on what I'm doing, getting getting things done, and uh, and uh, just uh, get it over it. So but I then I then I know I'm available after that and can do whatever. I can see myself. I'd be like looking at the timer in the corner. I'd be like looking at the screen with Word or whatever open, thinking, I don't know what to write. I have ADD, I so I, I can't help but like constantly check stuff. And then I'd be looking <laughs> yep. in the corner, go 25 minutes, right, okay. So I've got to write something. Yeah, so you've put, got 15 minutes left. I've got to write something. Oh, and I'd just be looking at that timer. And like, oh, I'm just going to pop off, get a coffee. Then I won't be checking Twitter. I'll get a coffee. Oh, only a minute left. Oh, I still haven't written anything. Oh, well, let's check Twitter. Twitter, let's check my emails then. Yeah. <laughs> and then the cycle all over again. Yes. So uh, it actually requires that you actually follow this stuff. But uh, my PowerShell script is automating the unavailable thing. And also remember to set you available when you are finished with those 25 minutes so you don't forget yeah. to. You don't, uh, you're, you're not in a don't disturb status for <clears throat> the rest of the day or something. Uh, I, I think I'll give that a go because... Uh, yeah, it's very cool. 
I, I have I, I do I, I got to admit if I'm in front of a PC I have a lot of trouble uh, just concentrating on the the one thing because emails pop up I do a lot of my writing and people think this is always seem to think this is stupid using an iPad with a keyboard because it's it is a single task I actually have to make an effort to switch out uh, of of using uh, the the writing app. Uh, Whereas with a PC, everything's there, you know, one screen with uh, email on, another screen with Word open, and you just look to the edge. Uh, so your script, does that close down some of those apps or just minimize them? Uh, it uh, doesn't close any apps on the computer. It just uh, minimizes the pop-ups. Yeah. So uh, you don't get any pop-ups when uh, you get new emails or Twitter messages. And uh, it will also update your personal notes uh, yeah. of how many minutes are left for... And the duration and um, the last 30 seconds are with a second countdown. It's quite cool. Uh, yeah. So people will, will know when you're uh, going to be available. But uh, you need to make an effort to be unavailable. And I noticed I usually are more productive in the evenings. And probably that's because I know I won't get disturbed. So I want to try to get more productive during the day as well. Yeah. Without, without being too unavailable, but still be unavailable when it suits me. So, have so, you found uh, people have been hovering over to send you a message as soon as it goes down to zero? No, but uh, I have followed up a lot of uh, correspondence uh, when I get uh, available again. Yeah. And uh, it's uh, it's really good. Then I can actually follow up emails with uh, with a good conscience because I ha I know I have been productive for 25 minutes. Yeah. And as I said, you, you, it's amazing how much you get done. For 25 minutes. Can you get, write a script so like it, it can shock you if you actually look at Twitter while the timer's still going? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that. <laughs> I need that. that. And uh, I'm also trying to update the script now uh, to be uh, because now you have to install the SDK. You need to actually deploy a custom presence date and stuff like that. So I yeah. I want to update the script uh, with um, that is more complete. Help you download stuff, install stuff, and also enable custom custom presence dates uh, from the script itself. Yeah. That SDK stuff because uh, uh, John McKenney sent me a link. Some guy was working on. We talked about it jokingly in, in the past, but those Philips Hue light bulbs, and he's got some early attempt using those SDKs to connect to the Hue API. So I mean, the same kind of stuff. Because to me, that would be pretty epic if I could change my entire room's colors to match my present state. That would be neat. <laughs> yeah, or, or use the the um, what's it called the the busy light. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what someone's going to do? They're going to see some other people using this in the company. Like, ah, I don't know what I could use this for. I'll put it into this working state, and then I'll go off, do nothing for a bit. And my boss will think, I've been really productive for half an hour. <laughs> yeah, well, it's more like a personal tool, and uh, and it has uh, you, you actually need to install the SDK and stuff. So it's more like for you IT pros out there. Um, yeah. It's uh, more fun <laughs> than uh, actually deployable in an organization. But uh, yeah, try to use it, and it's quite cool. Yeah, I'm going to have a go with it. Uh, yeah, good stuff, man. Yeah. So Thanks. our link... Uh, our link topics are done, and now we're going to move on and talk about the wonders of, of Google, uh, especially with John, uh, and their Ooh. latest <laughs> Boogle, that's what you should call because <laughs> every time, boo. Um, no, it's, it, it's, it's only one small thing uh, that they've done. Uh, the latest version of Android, Android KitKat, has yeah. issues <laughs> with Exchange Active Sync. Uh, and there's a there's a blog post by Tony Redmond uh, who's, who's picked up on it, and uh, there's a 
a thread on uh, the Android bug fix forum. Uh, so this latest update uh, for Android is going over the air to devices not at the same rate that they go to iPhone users, um, but it but it, it's slowly filtering out to Android users, and it breaks uh, comms with ActiveSync. It breaks the credential store, uh, is, is, as I understand it, the, the high-level overview. So the, the key thing with that is to if you are one of the few organizations who are using Android devices in a corporate setting, then you, you might want to consider stop touchdown, <laughs> which I'd say anyway, stop, yeah. You might want to consider touchdown. And you might want to consider encouraging users not to update just yet. Uh, and if it is their own personal devices, then there's, that's yet another reason why they shouldn't use their personal devices straight onto Exchange uh, unless they've got something uh, that's not Android, like an iPhone, uh, or if you want, a Windows phone. Uh, I, I almost sound like someone that's written a book about iPhones and, and is a little bit into them. <laughs> I'm not, but I have recently got my iPhone 5S, and it's a brilliant phone. It's better than any Android device I've ever had. Hey. <laughs> um, so that, that's that's all there is on that. So watch out for Android KitKat, and uh, let's go on to our exchange script of the day. Um, new script uh, for reporting on mailbox moves. Uh, Michelle has <coughs> had a play with this, haven't you? Yeah, because it's actually developed by a colleague of mine. Uh, we work on the same project, and we do lots of mailbox moves. And yeah, we want to uh, keep track of where the moves were in the process. We had also uh, several mailbox move batches uh, running at the same time. So we had to have some reporting on that. And Martin developed a nice script for that. And it allows you to generate a, uh, periodically generate a report on the status of all the moves. It gives you a nice overview of. Uh, uh, how many moves are left uh, on the uh, pass moves, the throughput rates, etc. And yeah, it's uh, it's we use it now and we use it in production and, and uh, yeah, it's, it's also nice because it sends an email so you can keep track of the process because most of the times these moves are running during the night or in the weekends and you can just check your phone and see where what the status is of the. Of the uh, of the move, so so yeah. uh, so what sort of environment size would this make sense for? Because it doesn't. I I wouldn't have thought that you'd use it for maybe you know a hundred user type environments, uh, but uh, it might be absolutely invaluable for two five thousand users. Yeah, but well, we're in the Netherlands, so getting to those numbers might be a bit. Uh, bit of a challenge but, so, uh, so it's everything from small to large then depends on what you want because in our case the it depends uh, typical consultants <laughs> <thing> there <laughs> well, the, it was part of a, a bigger <laughs> overall process and yeah. uh, when the moves were complete there were things like um, uh, SharePoint people migrating profiles in the yeah. environment depending on our uh, on our process so that needs to be coordinated and this tool helps to get the signal of the moves ready and uh, so what kind of environments will it work with will it work with 2007 or 2010 to 2013 well we used it for 20 
13, but it was, yeah, that's the environment it was tested in, but yeah, yeah it uses generic uh, uh, exchange management commandlets, so. So could you use it against Exchange Online if you were moving people to the cloud? I have, we haven't tested it, but if you tested this, please uh, report yeah, your findings. Yeah, so, so theoretically <laughs> that could be pretty useful because you can do migration batches, obviously, and that can give you notifications yeah. when it completes. But uh, but yes, yeah, so that that sounds that sounds very useful, and especially with Exchange Online, I'm thinking as soon as you said throughput, uh, then that's that's something that uh, is interesting to monitor, uh, especially across batches. Uh, for Exchange Online. Yeah. Well, if you have uh, questions like that or suggestions, perhaps for uh, future enhancements, um, yeah, Martin Peter, we put a blog up on uh, the UCCExperts.nl uh, blog. The, that's, a, that's a company uh, company blog. Um, yeah, post, uh, post in the comments your f uh, findings or your inquiries and, uh, yeah, make it a better product. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, that the link for that is up on the website alongside the show today. Uh, we've got a few Office 365 topics. Uh, I should mention on the side uh, that our Office 365 MVPs, uh, a few of those are, are headed by Lauren Strand, have started their own Office 365 podcast, uh, taking some inspiration from them. So if you want uh, to, to listen to Office 365 and nothing else... God help you. Um, you got it. <laughs> no, no. If you do, then we kid, we kid. Office three six five FM might be a podcast to listen to after this. Uh, we could start an Office three six five radio station. No, a UC radio station uh, with podcasts for all sorts of stuff. Um, but yes, they're doing a podcast every couple of weeks as well. Uh, and uh, Lauren Strant is joined uh, by some other Office three six five MVPs uh, from Europe as well. So they're, they're a worldwide bunch uh, too. So uh, Sean McNeil, uh, Martina Gram, and Oh, well, I can't remember the, um, the, the guy. <laughs> Don't you hate it when you can't remember someone's name, uh, especially when you, you were dancing with them for an entire evening. And Jethro Seggers uh, as well uh, are doing that podcast together. And uh, although I've not listened to uh, an episode yet, I know it will be very good uh, because I sat down with Lauren and gave him some advice based on our podcast. Uh, so give that a listen. Um, but, of course, we continue to have uh, the full story uh, the full view giving you both sides of it when it comes to office 365 uh, whether it's on-premise hybrid or in the cloud uh, we'll give you all the stories and on to our office 365 stories to round up this episode uh, with office 365 uh, some new URLs and IP ranges uh, have been introduced yet again. In fact, by the time this episode gets out, I imagine Microsoft will have dumped a few and uh, made a few more public as well. Uh, so, uh, as as consultants, we, we often go in and uh, get these ranges put in, proxy servers configured. But by the time we're out the door, uh, there'll have been some changes, and there continue to be changes. And often... Uh, a prolonged process for organizations to go through change management to get these done and complaints about whether that where they're supposed to monitor these whether they've got a monitor an RSS feed uh, 
look out for Henrik Walter's blog on msexchange.org. Uh, and the, the best way to keep up to date with these, because it's not as if Microsoft uh, send all of their customers that are affected by these changes an email in advance to let them know that they've got a month to make these changes. Um, but there are new changes and yeah it's a pain in the ass uh anyone else disagree or have any thoughts on that i agree pain in the ass yeah uh so yeah if you've got office 365 then keep up to date with those and if you aren't already uh subscribe to that rss feed uh because you're not going to find out about it uh, until it breaks otherwise we mentioned this in the last episode, uh, and that's the directory sync tool. Uh, so Windows Azure Active Directory Sync, uh, the, the, the tool to synchronize your uh, on-premise Active Directory with Office 365 or with your Windows Azure Active Directory tenant, uh, gets updated on a fairly regular basis. Yet another thing you need to make sure is up to date um, at least fairly regularly uh, with your Office 365 environment. And that was updated uh, around about the time of our last episode, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, but that was pulled. Uh, the reason it was pulled uh, was because uh, when it did a sync, it kept on trying to sync the same objects over and over again. You know, one object maybe 20,000 times over 24 hours uh, and not doing anything, just consuming extra cycles. And of course, that because that sync never finished, uh, it caused some problems. Uh, I saw that myself. So it's obviously not an edge case issue. Uh, I saw that both in the lab and on customer site. So they pulled that update and they re-released it. Uh, but they haven't just re-released it because in the last update, uh, you could install it on a domain controller, uh, which might be suitable for smaller environments. For example, if you're a sub 150 users and you're not getting a bung from Microsoft to implement Office 365, uh, then you... Uh, then you might be concerned about the, the amount of hardware you need to implement and you can now install it on a domain controller uh, obviously a 64-bit domain controller so probably 2008 2008 r2 onwards uh, with the previous release before they pulled it you couldn't install it into a production environment they've now taken that caveat off so it's not best practices to put it into a production environment um, but you can install it into a production environment now uh, onto a domain controller if you so wish and i, I think with uh, things like password sync there's going to be some customers that will find that quite compelling especially the smaller environments that do want that automation our final topic of the day is message encryption in office 365 so uh, who's familiar with what the options are for encrypting messages in email? Shall we see if we can reel some of those off? S-Mime, S-Mime, PGP, yeah. So those are that, those are two on-premise. Doesn't matter what email system you've got. Could be in the cloud. Can be done just by the client. Doesn't require any server-side stuff. Uh, what, what what else uh, do we see in the Exchange world? I don't think a lot of other one that's the two you mentioned before IRM did we mention it yeah maybe IRM yeah. IRM so information rights management uh, does anyone want to give me a quick overview of what that does uh, <laughs> I think you should do it you brought it up <laughs> uh, I didn't think I was going to have to mention them all so information <laughs> rights management is good for other things as well uh, not just encrypting the messages but uh, making sure that people don't forward them or people don't print a copy of them. So you've not only, you're not only encrypting the message to make sure only the right person or right people can read it, you can also make sure that they can't just 
forward it on uh, or uh, or uh, print it out or take a print screen and you can also do that against documents as well just in the same way that you can normally encrypt stuff you can say this powerpoint document that uh, is on a network share can only be uh, printed uh, but it can't be screen grabbed that's a really bad example the other way around you can only look at it on the screen but you can't print it um, so there's a so there's a few different options there's also edge appliances that you can get that do encryption uh, where all messages that go out from your organization uh, will be encrypted uh, they might be stored on a, a server um, PGP do some that, that, that fulfill that purpose as well to make sure that uh, messages that uh, fulfill certain policies will be encrypted uh, so to mix uh, matters up uh, a little bit further Microsoft are introducing message encryption in Office 365 sitting alongside their Azure uh, information uh, rights management uh, products uh, so has anyone had a, a look at what this software can do? No. Leaving it all to me. I know, I know it says my name against all of these topics. Uh, is, is, is information protection really something that should be left to me? I think not. Uh, uh, the, the amount of NDAs we almost break in this show. Uh, so the, the essence of message encryption on Office 365 is that you can set up rules as an administrator to say that messages containing certain certain information should always be encrypted when they go out to senders. So a typical use case might be that an insurance company sends out a PDF document to a new customer uh, that contains their policy uh, documentation. And what message encryption can do is make sure that the receiver of the message, whatever email system they're on, uh, so a customer, uh, with their Gmail account, no booze, <laughs> okay, uh, with their Hotmail account, whatever email system they're using, we'll get, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to open that encrypted message. And when they open that encrypted message, it won't be secured by something like SMIME, it won't be something standards compliant, that message will require them to sign in to Office 365, uh, but using a Windows Live ID or if they're on Office 365 using their organization ID and then they'll see the message and it'll be unencrypted and presented to the user so it's a good solution uh, if you want to share something encrypted and you want to retain control over that document as well almost like a, a cut down IRM is the best way that, that I can think of it the the one downside that I'm concerned about is that I feel like I've been speaking for ages on this topic. Guys, you're just going to sit there and let me rattle on about this. I, I know I wanted to whine about it. Um, but the, 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 the downside I see with this is that uh, because the encrypted message is stored with the sender's tenant, the, the wonky issue I would see is say you were having a look at your policy documentation that you had received six months ago and your insurer has decided that they were going to dump Office 365 and move back to on-premises and get rid of that Office 365 subscription. When you click and go in and open your policy documentation, then because that 
because message encryption lives with the tenant, with the sender's tenant rather than the receiver, you'd no longer be able to open that message. So you might think, oh, I don't need to have a look at my insurance document until my my house burns down. It's all safe in my in my Hotmail account. Then you go to open it just because your your, comp- your insurance company has moved, uh, merged tenants, acquisitions, whatever has happened. If that if if their Office 365 subscription ends for some reason, you've no longer got to access to that message yeah and i think that's that sucks. pretty crap <laughs> yeah because all the other solutions will make it possible to read the message and read the attachments so it's well it's a nice idea of microsoft but when it's depending on the tenant of the sender then well probably some companies will 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 get in some some issues so because Microsoft thinks um, that the uh, sender tenant will stay online forever, but as you said, when the uh, business decides to uh, remove their tenant, then the receiver of the message can't open the message anymore. And when you implement the SMAM or PGP solution, you will be open or, or will be able to open the message that was received because once received and decrypted, or stored on the secure gateway, you will be op- will be able to to open the specific attachment or specific specific mail. So I think to, they will have to think again about that. Well, pain in the ass point. Let's call it that way. Yeah, uh, I mean it's it's a good idea. Uh, you you've yeah. got to you've got to say that. But uh, I I thought we were past the days of. In, uh, throwing more proprietary stuff into products that it, 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 in theory is compatible with, with us. At least with our IRM, it has uh, it, it's something that says you know we're a Microsoft ecosystem inside this organization, uh, therefore IRM makes sense. But yeah, they, I think they could have done more to further secure uh, SMTP communication between popular email providers to make sure that comms between Office 365 and Gmail is always encrypted, for example, to make sure that uh, that that side of the story is is more secure from a consumer point of view. So Microsoft can say, or, or companies on Office 365 can say, we're on Office 365. Uh, that means that when we communicate with our customers who are major email providers like Hotmail, like uh, Gmail, it is always encrypted rather than just once opportunistic TLS. Um, and, and trying to further standards compliance technologies, not specifically PGP, um, but SMIME as well. Uh, making sure that you can synchronize certificates from your local AD to Office 365 would be a, a good start, uh, making it easy to deploy because uh, I think it's a travesty that, especially now we're in an age where people are more concerned about making sure their data is encrypted if it's in a cloud service and that it's not just on disk at rest encryption, but actually encrypted so only the right people can open it. It's really important that they focus on that because I I don't I, I don't have all the information on the underpinnings for this new product, but if a Windows Live ID uh, is all it needs to get access to that encrypted message, then it can't be that encrypted. Do you know what I mean? It might be encrypted at some point, but if you gain access to that Windows Live ID via whatever means 
you have been given, then you've got access to that encrypted message, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, good point. I, I don't know whether you do or whether you don't. Uh, what if the wrong person gets the message? For example, you send this message to um, my email address, uh, but uh, it was actually intended for somebody else. Well, if it's the email address that's the authentication, i.e. matching Windows Live ID, then sending the encrypted content to the wrong person means that they can open it rather than uh, if you use S-MIME uh, and you actually put in the wrong email address, then theoretically, if the if somebody else picks up that message, uh, for example, they uh, an organization, uh, someone leaves, a new person starts, and they take over that identity. You know, John leaves, and he was the only John in the organization, and new John leaves, and again, a uh, new John starts, and he's the only John, and they give him John at company. Uh, then he could... Uh, in theory, theory, he could open that encrypted message uh, using uh, an organization ID or Windows Live ID attached to that uh, email address. Whereas if it's proper encryption, then he wouldn't be able to open that email. Yeah, and about the, the, the point you mentioned about securing the transport stuff between several big providers. Uh, I read somewhere that Microsoft is... Well, thinking about protecting the, the network traffic between the different data centers in of Office 365. So maybe that's the first step they will take to protect the transport stuff and all the other stuff which is going over the lines between the data centers. And maybe the next step is to, well, to offer a secure mail between the, the, the big email providers. Well, common sense to me says that within the data centers themselves, everything's going to be encrypted between servers anyway. Uh, for example, the client access server traffic uh, is going to be encrypted between their mailbox roles. Office 365, being a global service, uh, uses global DNS, uh, GeoDNS, which means that if you are in the Netherlands and you access uh, a US tenant, then you'll go into probably Amsterdam, and then the CAS servers in Amsterdam will proxy you inside Microsoft's own network to yes. the mailbox servers in the US, mm -hmm. and that will be SSL encrypted. That's true. Because Exchange 2013 doesn't support SSL offloading. And the email communications as well will be TLS encrypted as well from for between Exchange servers. So I, I think they've got that pretty wrapped up in the product design. But it's, Yeah, but it's, I think there there will will be improvements in the future. I read some articles last week about the data which is sent between the data centers and Microsoft has had to convince some uh, government organization, I think, and they announced that they're working on it to encrypt all traffic between the data centers. And yeah. So, for sure, Exchange is pretty pretty secure. But but yeah, so I suppose if they want to encrypt everything, like IPsec on whatever their global, uh, yeah. what do they call it, global uh, network services, is, is that what they uh, I forget offhand, um, but that, that's that's the kind of thing that uh, is good. But uh, as a an industry as a whole, then moving to an encryption first 
point of view seems to be something that that would be good for everybody uh whether you're someone working for the government making sure what you do is highly secure and confidential or if you're just a company that's worried about uh your intellectual property being uh, uh tampered with or, or viewed and really you know we're in 20 we're in 2013 and we should be at a at a point if we look back 10 15 years we would have thought that by 2013 we'll be at a point where an email client would say this message was not encrypted throughout its its life uh, if it, uh, and that would be the exception to the rule uh, so it should have been encrypted from end to end uh, and we're at a, at, a, at a point where I think you know you've got customers there that have archiving products set up where they're archiving to the cloud and that traffic from from their local email system to their archiving provider for, for some I bet is not encrypted and that's the, the point we're at where we're no further on than we probably were 20 years ago when it comes to securing email in transit which is where it really counts when it's actually sitting on the system and uh, then it's slightly less important but it, again it's it's a, a challenge that uh, the solution is there but companies like Microsoft with Exchange have done nothing to really further that except introduce additional technologies that are not compliant with industry standards and I, I'd like to see some improvements anyway get mad baby get mad tell us how you feel I'm not angry I'm not angry <laughs> but uh, but yeah I, I, I don't strictly agree with with, with people saying that this is a this is a good thing, it's going to help against uh, against improving the reputation. I think this is yet another uh, thing that is going to be brought up in a few months' time as this is a reason why it's not secure. When people look and go, well, actually, you could get around it in this, this, and this ways. And th- and strictly speaking, then they're not security flaws, but it's certainly not it's not an improvement not a big improvement uh, and it's and it's not compatible with open standards the whole thing about email is it's supposed to be compatible it doesn't matter who you're emailing you just put in the address it works that's the beauty of email and that the the cause of of, of companies like the well, the exchange product group should be to try and make their product interop inter- interoperate better with other email systems rather that, than but not google Yes, Google, definitely. No, Google. Google. <laughs> no, but it, it should. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. That's, that's, that's your just, opinion, John. That, they're the devil. <laughs> no, it it should isolate matter. them. <laughs> but the, the, the fact is, Google will do a better job of supporting open standards, uh, in my opinion, than than Microsoft. Yeah, until especially the standards they, they themselves create, call them open, and then make them not open. Those, <laughs> those are the best things that Google does. Mm. Well, okay. I, I'm not. I, I'm not a Google fanboy, so I'm not going <laughs> to argue with you. I'm not going to argue with you. But, uh, but yeah. So, uh, open standards are key, especially when it comes to email security. Anyway, I think that's our, that's our last topic done, and it's time to wrap up. I know we've rattled on a lot about email security. Um, uh, so sorry if you if you fell asleep in the last few minutes of this episode. Thank you to all my co-hosts today. Thank you to Stole, who has gone. Uh, thank you to John. Thank you to Michelle. And thank you to Johan. And I think this week's show is going to be edited by the wonderful Andrew Price. The UC Architects was sponsored today by Instant Technologies, experts in 
IM Archiving, e-discovery and compliance applications for Link. Learn more and get started in minutes with a free trial at tryhraorder.com or follow Team Instant on Twitter. We want to remind you that the UC Architects are online on the interwebs. Visit our website today at www.theucarchitects.com or follow us on Twitter at the UC Architects. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the UC Architects. And we're on LinkedIn too. We've got a group called the UC Architects. Podcast episodes are available on iTunes and other marketplaces. You'll also find us on Windows Phone with our wonderful app. Or of course, if you prefer RSS, just use the RSS feed. See our website for links to everything on the show today. We'll see you back for the next episode with Pat Hosting. Thanks for listening. Thank you.